It's uh, an incredible privilege to bring God's Word uh, before you once again uh, this morning for the, the third time this month, which was not anticipated, but that's okay. Um, God's plan is not the same as mine, so uh, let's rejoice for that. Um, well, this morning we are going to be continuing, uh, as I did the last uh, several weeks, uh, with the book of Lamentations. And uh, Lord willing, uh, at some point, I will preach through this entire book, uh, but not right now. Uh, so we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 2 this morning. And I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles. So this morning, I don't have uh, any fill-in notes. We don't have a slideshow. It's kind of on me. Um, I was uh, not, again, anticipating preaching three times this month. Um, but if you, if you follow along in, uh, in your Bible, and then there's also a small uh, half sheet in your program this morning where if you'd like to take notes, uh, you can, and I encourage you to this morning. So the second chapter of the book of Lamentations is something that really should serve as a wake-up call to those of us who minimize or overlook the extent and severity of God's wrath and judgment towards sin. This chapter serves us as a reminder that sin must be taken seriously. If we see, uh, as we see in the first, the first chapter of this book, that if God would so fiercely discipline his own chosen people, Israel, with such an all-consuming judgment, then what does that mean for the sin in our lives? What's the end for those who reject his authority and rebel against his commands now? One commentary has this to say about the book of Lamentations. The central message of Lamentations is the suffering that befell Jerusalem. It expresses the prophet's grief for the desolation of the city and the temple of Jerusalem, the captivity, the famine, and other calamities which his fellow Jews had suffered because of their sin. But the deeper we go into the book of Lamentations, the more we see that God expresses hope and consolation for his people, and that he has the power to restore his own once again to fellowship with him if they will come to him in repentance. And again, Lord willing, at some point, I will finish uh, preaching through this book. Now, the last few weeks, we've established that sin brings sorrow. Sin brings sorrow. And the second chapter of the book of Lamentations gives us a description of the city's desolation in, in great detail from the vantage point of God and the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the Lord describes the desolation of Jerusalem as what he sovereignly allowed against his own chosen people. 
And the prophet Jeremiah confirms that Jerusalem's desolation, again, is because of their own disobedience and sin against God. But God's concern is for the people to seek him in prayer. And then he would look upon the tragic state of his people and demonstrate his wonderful grace and mercy toward them. Now, hopefully what we learn here this morning is somewhat of a painful lesson that sin not only brings sorrow, but sin also brings the judgment of God. But if we turn to him in repentance, we know that he is faithful, that he is just, and that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are few chapters of the Bible that, that give us a, a heavier or more serious tone than the chapter of Lamentations 2. Jeremiah almost exhausts the entire Hebrew language in attempting to describe God's fierce anger and wrath against Jerusalem. Now, let's, uh, let's look at this passage of Scripture. We're going to be in, uh, again, Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. And he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads. 
and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look to it for guidance, for truth, for teaching, for correction, for instruction. Thank you that in, um, in the book of Isaiah, we see that your word goes out from your mouth and it does not return empty, but it shall accomplish all that you, that you purpose and shall succeed in the thing that you sent it for. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray this morning that um, you would convict hearts um, and you would speak through me as I attempt to look into your word and show the truth from it that you want us to see or that we can learn from the people of Israel and maybe hopefully make better decisions than they did. Or we give this morning to you, and it's all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we've discussed um, the last several weeks, we know that sin brings God's judgment. And in the first ten verses of this chapter, we see God's wrath being evident. They describe... These verses describe the fierce anger and wrath of God. And these verses ascribe to the Lord all the devastation that has come upon the land. So it says throughout this chapter, it is the Lord who has swallowed up, thrown down, brought them down, profaned, cut off, drawn back his hand, burned, bent his bow, destroyed, rejected, despised, and abandoned. Verse after verse tells us of the terrible wrath from the Lord that has fallen on the city and its people. But we need to notice here that in the first nine verses here, not one word is mentioned about the human adversary of Jerusalem, that is Babylon or King Nebuchadnezzar. It's all the Lord's doing. It was God's will that this punishment come upon them. Notice the the phrase in those first nine verses, he has, is used around 24 times. He has cast down. He has not remembered. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has. God is the one who brought this destruction upon Jerusalem. Now, before we get any further, I want to try to break down how God's will works in the best way that I possibly can. Now, there are three different types of God's will that we see throughout Scripture. And I'm going to paraphrase a, uh, an article that was written uh, several years ago uh, by the, the pastor uh, R.C. Sproul. Now there are, again, three different types of God's will. The first is decretive, the second is preceptive, 
and the third is permissive. And we see all three of these wills exercised by God throughout all of Scripture. Now the first, decretive. It has the word decree in it. And now, to use a bit bigger of a term, this is sometimes described as the sovereign, efficacious will by which God brings to pass whatever he pleases by his divine decree. Now, let me simplify that a little bit. An example of this is when God said, let there be light in his work in creation. He issued a divine imperative. Basically, he said it would happen, and so then it had to happen. It was, uh, it was impossible for the light not to appear. It absolutely had to come into existence. God's decretive will can have no other effect than that. He sovereignly commands it, and it happens. He didn't request the light to shine. He didn't coax it or woo it into existence. And there's no other creature on earth or in heaven that enjoys the power of this will. No man's will is that strong that it will come into existence. Men issue decrees. We ask for things to happen. And then we hope that those things will happen. But God's decree alone will come to pass 100% of the time. So that is God's decretive will. Now there's also the area of God's preceptive will. Now we see the word precept in that, which is another word for his commandments. The preceptive will of God, will of God relates to the revealed commandments of God's published law. When God commands us not to steal, this decree doesn't carry with it the same weight of or immediate necessity of consequence as his other will. It's not possible for the light to refuse to shine because he commanded it to do so and it will. But it is possible for us to disobey God's commands. If he asks us and tells us not to steal, we still can. And in order for us to understand this, his preceptive will, his commandments, are also part of his decretive will. So God sovereignly decrees that his law be established. It's established, and nothing can disestablish it. His law exists as surely as the light by which we read it. But we can still see a difference here between light's obedience to God and our disobedience to God's moral preceptive decree. So how do we, how do we account for this this discrepancy, seemingly discrepancy here. Well, that's where we get to the permissive will of God. The permissive will of God. Now, this distinction uh, between God's sovereign will to decree and God's permissive will is full of 
confusion sometimes. In ordinary language, the term permission, permission suggests that it's some sort of positive sanction by God. To say that God allows or permits evil doesn't mean that he sanctions it where in the sense that he approves of it. He does not grant approval to sin. And it's easy for us to discern throughout scripture that God never permits sin in the sense that he wants it to happen in his creatures. Again, to, uh, to quote uh, R.C. Sproul, what is usually meant by divine permission is that God simply lets it happen. That is, he does not directly intervene to prevent its happening. Here is where grave danger lurks. Some theologies view this drama as if God were impotent to do anything about human sin. Now, this view makes man sovereign, not God. God is reduced to the role of spectator or cheerleader, by which God's exercise in providence is that of a helpless father who, having done all he can do, must now sit back and simply hope for the best. He permits what he cannot help but permit because he has no sovereign power over it. R.C. Sproul continues, This ghastly view is not merely a defective view of theism. It is unvarnished atheism. Whatever God permits, he sovereignly wills to permit it. If I have a choice to sin or not to sin, God also has a choice in the matter. He always, always has the ability and authority to stop me from exercising my will. He has absolute power to restrain me. He can vaporize me instantly if it's his pleasure. Or he can keep me on a long leash and let me do my worst. He will only permit me to do my worst if my worst coincides with his perfect providential plan. Now we see, uh, we see this, an example of this throughout scripture. The first being the story of Jonah. Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh and to preach to them. He refused. He got on a ship he sailed the other direction, but God chose to take him, throw him in the ocean, be swallowed by a giant fish, and then against his will end up in Nineveh doing what God had asked him to do. Jonah didn't really have a choice in the matter. God put him there. And also we see God's will worked with Joseph's brothers and the treachery perpetuated by them when they sold him into slavery. 
Joseph said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Now going back to these first nine verses here, the verses that we're looking at do not describe the permissive will of God, but the direct decretive will of God. It's important to see this because what we're seeing is Jerusalem's desolation from God's vantage point. And it's also important to understand that all three types or kinds of God's will were working in this devastation. So God brought his law to his people by his preceptive will. The people disobeyed and continued to sin within the sovereign permissive will of God. They were on that long leash, so to speak. And then destruction, famine, exile, loneliness, and death were brought upon them by God's divine decretive will. God's will was working in every single moment of their destruction for a purpose. Now notice uh, again in these first 10 verses, the words anger and wrath are used six times in these first 10 verses. God's judgment and anger was directed toward Jerusalem. So we see in verse 5, the Lord being described as like an enemy to Jerusalem. His own people, his very own chosen people, he was like an enemy because they refused to repent of their sin. Now, I want to make it clear, God was not actually their enemy, but he acted as though he were because they refused to repent. Jeremiah in these verses here, attempts to describe God's fierce and justified wrath against their sin. Now, anger and wrath tend to have pretty bad connotations most of the time when we talk about those emotions. But we need to understand that God gave us those emotions to help us deal with our sin in our lives. God's anger and wrath against Jerusalem was justified. He wasn't sinning by destroying them. They deserved the punishment that they received. Another example of this in Scripture is when Christ overturned the tables, throwing out money changers in the temple. They were sinning against a holy God, turning his house into a den of thieves. And his anger was completely and totally justified. God has given us anger as a means to fight against sin. We should be angry about the sin in our own lives and the sin in others' lives when we see it. It should, it should hurt us to the core. 
Another verse in the, the book of Ephesians that uh, Melissa loves to, uh, this is one of her favorite verses to quote to Norin. Um, in Ephesians 4.26, it says, Be angry and sin not. Be angry and sin not. And we also see God's judgment that was directed against his established institutions. First, we see he directed his judgment against the temple and theocratic administrators in verses 2 through 6. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he's broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He's cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He is burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. The temple was destroyed. God's judgment came upon his established institutions. He also brought his judgment on the altar and feasts. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raise a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. God also showed his judgment on the city, the covenant city of Jerusalem. In verses 8 and 9, the Lord determined to lay in the ruins the wall of the daughter of Judah, daughter of Zion. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. He brought his judgment upon his own chosen city. Now, we see in verse 10, so verses 1 through 9 there are a description of everything that God has done to this city. In verse 10, we actually get a glimpse of how the people are feeling about it. This is their response after seeing God's anger poured out on them. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. They don't really know how to respond. The elders sit on the ground in silence. And they threw dust on their heads and put on sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning. They didn't really know what to do in that situation. And so throughout this chapter, throughout the first 10 verses, we see what the direct result of God's righteous anger is. First, we see a loss of dignity and impact. When we continue in disobedience, as verse 1 says that the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud, 
When we continue in disobedience, life becomes cloudy. We can't see very far. There's a, there's a bit of a, a dulling down to our own testimony. It's really hard to share the gospel with people when our lives don't show it. That's why we're sometimes so ineffective is because we are so deep into sin. We haven't even preached the gospel to ourselves. We sometimes forget it. We're clouded by our sin. We also see as a direct result of God's righteous anger a loss of stability and vitality. When you're not sure how to stand with a sovereign God, you are unstable and unsure as you attempt to walk with him. If you believe that your plan is the best and you don't have time to follow the Holy Spirit's leading and to obey, your life becomes unstable and you become unsure of what next step to take. We also see as a result of God's anger upon sin, a multiplication of inner anguish. So instead of the Lord helping us and assisting us in our service and obedience of him, as we see in verse 5, he becomes like an enemy. He becomes like an enemy to us. Because we have made him that way in our lives. Because of sin, he's turned against us. And he must deal with us as if we were his enemy. And the sadness that comes along with God treating us like his enemy is a direct result of our disobedience. It can lead to depression and many other mental illnesses that we, uh, we see today. There is anxiety that is running rampant in our culture today. There's depression that's running rampant in our culture today. And most times we don't view that as a direct result of sin. And while therapy and uh, medication are sometimes viable options for people that are deep into those mental illnesses, we really need to take a step back and determine whether or not it's our own sin that has caused that in our lives. Finally, we, we see a feeling of loneliness and abandonment. When you lose your purpose for worshiping God, you experience a feeling of loneliness 
and it feels like you've been abandoned by him. Now, activities such as gathering together this morning on, on Sunday morning, they become just that, activities, not worship. It's just another thing that we can check off our list. Or it might not even be that. It might be just something that you got to push through. And if you're doing that right now, and if you hear me saying that right now, I pray that that is uh, God's conviction upon you this morning. That if this just feels like another thing you got to get into your day uh, in order to escape the judgment of God, I pray that you are convicted and that you truly fall before the Lord Jesus in worship because of your love for him this morning, that you repent of your sin. We see a loss of direction in our lives when God judges our sin. When sin is present in our life, not confessed or dealt with, we feel blind. We feel like we're stumbling around in a dark room and that's evident because of this response of the people of Israel in verse 10. We see that the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. And I'm just like imagining this scenario that their city is laid to waste. Things are on fire. Buildings are broken down. Their people are gone. There's crying in the streets. And the elders, the, the people who are supposed to have all the answers, sit down on the ground, not making a sound, in their mourning clothes. They had no idea what to do. And that's, that's what the effects of sin can bring upon us. It's such a striking um, observation that we can make in this portion of chapter 2 that there's such an emphasis on God's initiative in bringing destruction on Jerusalem and his people because of their sin. Now, as I've discussed previously, this book of the Bible is probably one of the saddest the darkest, but it's in here for a reason. God inspired Jeremiah to write of the mourning, of the sadness, of the destruction of the city because of God's purpose and plan. Jeremiah clearly saw that God was the one who ultimately was responsible for all of the destruction because he was angry over Israel's sin. Jeremiah shows us the dire effects of God's divine anger in those miseries that are brought on his country. 
his chosen people. And again, as I, as I um, had us ponder earlier, if God brought that destruction upon Israel, his chosen people because of their sin, why would he not do the same for us, his chosen people? Sin grieves God's heart. It brings his judgment. And so he gives us a solution to this. We are to confess our sin. We are to repent of our sin. Turn away from it as soon as you recognize it in your life. I don't want to minimize the grace of God because along with being a just, righteous, and holy God, God is also loving and he is gracious and he is merciful. He asks that we confess our sin to him. He will be merciful to us if we confess our sin, if we fall before him in repentance. God isn't just sitting there waiting with a a lightning bolt ready to, to strike us when we sin. The reason that God brings punishment for sin is so that we can stop sinning. He teaches us through his judgment. Now, just realized I have the wrong version of my sermon once again that doesn't have my conclusion, but um, I'll do my best to uh, close it out. Um. We see through Jesus Christ the greatest sacrifice of all time. He bore our sin. The judgment that ultimately we deserved, the wrath that we ultimately deserved from God was poured out on him. He stood in our place so that this judgment, this wrath of God, we would be spared from it. He asks only that we repent. He asks that we put our faith in what Christ did on the cross. His atoning sacrifice 
that our sin was placed on him and he bore the full wrath of God. He died, that he rose on the third day. And our salvation will be sealed in him forever. God's word says that no one can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing can separate us from God's love. So that wrath and that judgment that we deserved was poured out on Jesus in our place. And now instead of receiving that judgment and wrath of God, we receive grace, mercy, forgiveness, and the promise of eternal life with him. See, all of the Bible was leading up to Jesus. God knew it from the very beginning. Every single part of Scripture should be viewed from the lens of Jesus at the center. This chapter, the chapter previous, the entire Old Testament, they were waiting for something better. They could sacrifice all they wanted. They could tear their their robes and mourn in sackcloth all they wanted. But they were waiting for the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And now we can look back and see him throughout all of Scripture. Jesus is better. He's better than our sin. He's better than all the prophets. Better than all the kings. Jesus is better. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the picture of Christ that we see throughout all of Scripture. For the gospel that is, is shown to us in your word, page after, after page, verse after verse. Lord, that as, as those elders mourned in their destructed city, they waited. They, they waited for something better. They wanted kings. They wanted prophets. They wanted judges. But Lord, you sent Jesus, who was better than all of them, the ultimate sacrifice to bear the sins of the world. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. That the wrath of God that was intended for us sinners was poured out on Christ. That if we turn our eyes toward him, we repent, we ask for forgiveness of our sin, Lord, you will forgive us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. And I just pray that uh, you convict hearts here this morning. That you convict my heart as well. That we are 
all sinners in need of your grace. Thank you that you are just, but you are also kind and you are also gracious. And that you chose to send Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. When we were dead in our sins and trespasses. You made us alive with Christ. We have nothing to fear. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.